This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the brand new series of Hidden Histories in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the BBC's prestigious New Generation Thinkers Scheme. Since 2010, the New Generations Thinker Scheme has developed a new generation of 100 academics who can bring the best of university research and scholarly ideas to a broad audience through the media and public engagement. It's a chance for early career researchers to cultivate the skills to communicate their research findings to those outside the academic community. I am thrilled to be able to invite a selection of New Generation Thinkers to discuss their research on the podcast. The guests on this series of Hidden Histories discuss a multitude of fascinating topics, from famine relief over the last two centuries to the dark side of the Italian Renaissance. There is more information on the New Generation Thinker Scheme on the Arts and Humanities Research Council webpage, detailing events, programmes and reading material relating to the scheme and the NGT's research. I'll link all of this in the show notes, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special series. Dr. Tom Scott-Smith, welcome to Hidden Histories. So your most recent book that was out in April, On an Empty Stomach, 200 Years of Hunger Relief. This is all about humanitarian hunger relief and aid. How did you come about writing this? Well, in a way, I, I started with the way that hunger relief operates today. The idea for the book began when I was doing fieldwork in South Sudan in some of the large refugee camps that had emerged there in 2011, 2012, just after the independence of South Sudan. And I was looking at the way that hunger relief operated amongst the big humanitarian agencies, the kind of foods that they were given out, the kind of processes they used to assess eligibility for hunger relief. And I became interested in where those procedures came from. It was really beginning with a set of almost anthropological questions about why aid workers do things in the particular ways that they do. And what I saw on that trip was the distribution of these bags of food that, of course, I'd never heard of before, such as CSB, which stands for corn soy blend. It's quite a well-known food in the humanitarian sector. And plumpy nut, which is a silver sachet of peanut paste, which is fortified and stabilised so it can survive in warehouses for several years. And then a procedure of measuring the upper arm of children to test how thin the upper arm is, and therefore how much muscle wastage there's been. And that was how eligibility was processed. And of course, it it occurred to me straight away that these procedures weren't necessary in the sense that they had emerged from a particular kind of history, and that things would have been very different a long time before. So that was really the start of the book. It was going back 200 years and looking at the way that humanitarian hunger relief operated then, 
and then trying to identify the big shifts that took place over that period. And at what point did the concept of humanitarian aid become formalised? Was it originally part of a missionary agenda? Well, the word itself emerges in the middle of the 19th century, but it has a theological meaning. It basically refers to the, the theological position that believes in the humanity of Christ rather than his divinity. And it only really takes on the current meaning towards the end of the 19th century, but it has a much wider sense then, which actually includes animal rights. And then I would say the, the institutionalisation of humanitarianism a term, as a term comes a bit later, but then it only really becomes something that we all talk about. I mean, I would say in the 1990s, because before then people would more likely talk about disaster relief when they talk about what we refer to humanitarianism now. And when I talk about humanitarianism, I'm using it, I suppose, in a relatively narrow way to refer to the act of providing life-saving relief, relieving suffering, saving people's lives in a, in a very short-term emergency context. But it has been used much more broadly to refer to, frankly, everything from bombing campaigns to development projects to peace building. And as I said, historically, things like animal rights as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm using it to refer to this, I suppose, narrow part of the industry, which often contrasts itself with development, development being the long-term process of change and humanitarianism being the short-term relief of suffering. What were some of the early practices of hunger relief? How did it manifest in various countries or war zones? So actually, I, I begin the book by looking at the Victorian soup kitchen, which for me is the big contrast with contemporary practices of hunger relief. And I suppose many of us know the Victorian soup kitchen through reading Charles Dickens. We know more or less what it looks like. It's got these key features. Firstly, in a way, it's very much rooted in the local political environment. So there's this sense of a, a politics of provisions in the local area in that local donors would provide a soup kitchen in order to create stability and prevent unrest on the local area. Um, everyone eats communally. Everyone eats in these, these big halls. Um, soup is served out from a massive pot. And in the Victorian era, there were all these efforts to try and scale up the soup kitchen so that it could produce more and more soup for more and more of the urban poor. So it, it, in a way, it loses that rooting in the, the local and it becomes a bigger and more industrialised form of relief. So you get these massive vats, these massive contraptions that can boil down huge amounts of meat and potatoes and peas into, into soup. And these plans for soup kitchens, which are very meticulously arranged so that people queue up and that they've got six minutes to eat their meal and then they get handed a hunk of bread on the way out. So you have this whole technology of, of feeding, which operates along certain lines. And in the book, I, my idea is to contrast that with the, the, the system that I explained to you in South Sudan, where instead of having communal eating, for example, you get these very individualised rations. People get given a personal portion of peanut paste, for example, or they get weighed out a very precise, nutritionally balanced powder that they're asked to, to eat. So you get that shift from communal to individualised eating. You also get this shift from food which is more or less recognisable to everyone, a kind of vernacular food that people will judge by their senses. And by that I mean if it fills the stomach, if it makes them feel warm, if it's food that they're used to, then they will appreciate it. Whereas what you have now is a very specialist, very technical kind of food which is being judged by its nutrient content rather than those common sensual things that that previously characterised the, the judgment of the food. And then the third big shift is that you get a change from 
eligibility based on some kind of moral deservingness. So the idea that certain people are deserving of relief and others aren't, and that you have to go through certain, jump through certain hoops in order to get access to the, the soup kitchen. Very often that meant getting a, a feeding ticket from someone who was reputable in the local area who could say that you weren't going to, to waste this opportunity. And now you get eligibility based on a bodily measurement, on the measurement of the upper arm, for example. So it's a purely external judgment. Um, so I was interested in looking at, at these big three shifts that took place in the, the primary ways in which food relief was being being delivered. And I suppose the big argument of the book, the big thing I'm interested in, is how hunger relief reveals a lot about the preoccupations of each age. At any one moment, if you look at a feeding programme, and I was mostly working in the archives with the big humanitarian agencies, you can see all sorts of other social and political changes that are reflected through the kind of food that's being provided and the kind of eligibility assessments that are being made. What sort of people were these soup kitchens catering to? The homeless, workhouse, children? Was there any particular pattern within your research that you came across this? And was it this purely a domestic thing, when I say that, purely based within localised areas within England? Well, I think it's fair to say that before about the 1790s, they, they tended to be very much grounded in local politics and local systems of patronage. But from the 1790s onwards, that was when the big change came. There was a, a character called Count Rumford, born in Massachusetts in 1753, and set up a, a very big soup kitchen in Bavaria in the 1780s, and then wrote a series of pamphlets in the 1790s, which basically suggested a model for how a soup kitchen could be organised um, in a large and efficient way. Then you get a series of other uh, characters like Alexis Sawyer, who was the head chef at the Reform Club in London, who designs this enormous soup kitchen uh, for Ireland in the uh, potato famine of the 1840s. So it's a mixture between providing for the urban poor, particularly in the big cities, have migrated from the countryside and then events like like famines where it's exported overseas in a sense and what you get in the handbooks are a series of recipes which make a big claims to how much nourishment they can provide for how little money plans about how you can organize the space to make it as orderly as possible and then all sorts of other theories about how you can inculcate norms of good behavior through the soup kitchen so that's that's the that's that's the way that the model looks in that that early period. So it was almost a method of reform as well as a method of aid. Who were the most famous early humanitarians, and did they campaign or push for a particular method in hunger relief? Well, I think those, particularly the characters that I, w- I just mentioned, such as Count Rumford and Alexis Sawyer, they weren't what we would, I suppose, describe as humanitarians today. I mean, they certainly weren't professional humanitarians. Alexis Sawyer was a chef, a famous French chef, and having catered for the very richest members of society in the Reform Club, decided that he was going to turn his attention to catering for the slums. So it was almost a, a shift in the way that he wanted to approach his work. Uh, Rumford was, I suppose, an, a natural scientist in that tradition. He engineered lots of efficiencies in various spheres of life. So, for example, the fireplace that we find in most Victorian homes is often called the Rumford fireplace because it was designed for greater efficiency. It even led to a new word, Rumfordizing, which meant improving things or making them more efficient. So they weren't really professional humanitarians. I mean, in the mythology of humanitarian action, the beginnings of professional humanitarianism start with the Red Cross, the birth of the Red Cross movement, 
with Henri Dunant particularly writing his memoirs from the Battle of Solferino and then going on to establish the Red Cross movement. And then, of course, you have in the 1850s Florence Nightingale as well. But I suppose when I'm looking at the, the way that hunger relief operates in a technical way, it's less about these big mythologized figures and what they do and what they say and what they write in the pamphlets. It's more in the, I suppose I'm interested in the nitty gritty about what kind of things are being provided, what foods are being provided and what kind of assumptions are bound up in those. So at what point then did this become a scientific study of human hunger and its and its limitations? You know, you, you talk about how it went from the soup kitchen to the to the measuring of the circumference of a child's arm. At what point did it make that shift, do you think? Or, or do you think that that was there all along? Well, I think there's a, a series of moments. In the book, I make a, a lot of the work of Justus Liebig, who was really the father of nutritional science. And in 1847, wrote this book called Researches in the Chemistry of Food. Um, so he was a chemist. He actually had an interesting connection with hunger relief himself because he was born in 1803. And in 1816, when you had the, the year without a summer, the year when volcanic ash that I think had come from the Pacific spread across Europe, the, the, the crops weren't really growing in the spring. And he experienced a lot of hunger in his own hometown. And then he later goes on to publish this book and set up a company that produces a product called Extract of Meat, which is an early version of the OxoCube and Bovril, and which is used by many early humanitarians as a kind of portable soup, uh, you know, a reduced stock cube or soup, which can then be reconstituted and therefore is easier to travel. So rather than taking the whole soup kitchen with you and moving it overseas, you have something that's a lot more portable. But it's not just that that makes it different. I mean, I suppose there's the, the sense in which the technology is changing at this point. But the whole idea of food is changing with the rise of nutritional science. There's an interesting contrast because before Liebig, there's a lot of writing about this product called Osmosome, which none of us have really heard of. I think it's very poorly known about. But Osmosome was meant to be the substance that makes food nourishing. It's what, what you're left with if you make stock out of meat and then reduce it and boil it down and boil it and down and boil it down until you get this sticky um, mass, this uh, consistency, this thick consistency at the end. And that's really, of course, what Bovril is. But it was called Osmosome because it was considered that that was what made food nourishing. But what Liebig really did was, was transform the idea of what made food nourishing from being something that had a tangible profile that anybody could identify to it being invisible to the nutri the nutrients existing within the food and not being um, tangible to the naked eye so it becomes a moment when his status as, as an expert can be used to leverage all sorts of benefits for his business producing this taste and that's when you get the shift towards well in my view that's when you get the shift towards food as being a more expert pursuit and therefore a more professionalized process. I mean, that's really the, the beginnings of it, because it doesn't bleed into changing humanitarian action until much later. Do you think that there was an understanding of calorie requirement and basic human quantity and nutritional quantities? So for example, the breakdown of protein and fats, and was that sort of thing taken into account? Was that something that came later on when thinking about dispensing this sort of foodstuffs? Yeah, I think it seeps into the world of relief relatively slowly. And you get in the writings of Count Rumford, for example, all sorts of what seem now, frankly, bizarre ideas about what makes food nourishing, 
including his claim that the more watery the food is, the easier it is for people to digest and therefore the more nourishing it is. And he even compares poor people to being like plants in the sense that they just need water and sunlight and then they're going to be fine. I'm simplifying a little bit, but this idea that, in fact, the more watery the soup, the better, and therefore he can produce something even more efficient. Um, and then you get, yeah, very much a change about 100 years later, but it isn't until the work of the League of Nations in the 1930s that you actually get the lists of um, concrete calorific requirements for different kinds of people, um, which then lead to a very big change in the way that relief is provided in the Second World War and the post-war world. I think that's really when it becomes much more technical and you get these very different kinds of food that are being produced specifically for relief. Do you think that the First and Second World War had something to do with that when thinking about how to supply food and energy, I suppose, for soldiers? Do you think that the technology had to catch up because of that need and that in turn helped provide food for humanitarian aid as well or is is that would you say that's completely separate no they're they're very much related in fact particularly at the end of the second world war you get many military technologies directly crossing over into relief work i mean the classic example of this is the the refugee camp which is a a model of relief really begins in the post-war period and if you think about it i mean the kinds of things that any army needs when they're on the move They need lightweight, portable foods. They need shelters which can be carried and erected quickly. All these things are useful to humanitarians for precisely the same reason. And at the end of the Second World War, you have an enormous amount of surplus army rations that, of course, are already very nutritionally balanced. They're packaged up, they're long-lasting, and they're sold to the, the new UN agencies en masse, these surplus rations, to then distribute to displaced people at the end of the Second World War. There's... A definite shift, I think, at the end of the 1930s, when the work of the League of Nations was beginning to look at nutrition really holistically, and not just thinking about the nutritional needs of the body and how you can package something up to provide for those needs in in the most compact way, but also looking at how nutrition is affected by the economy and by agriculture and by health and the interrelationship of all these different things. But with the war, you almost get a a narrowing, a focusing of the mind on this very precise biological process. And the humanitarian agencies start taking lists of foods that as light as possible and as calorie dense as they can, and then producing new foods that, of course, no one is used to actually eating and delivering them as efficiently as possible into the body. And I think actually the best example of this and probably one of the most distressing examples of this is when the British go into Belsen at the end of the Second World War and are faced suddenly with uh, hundreds and thousands of emaciated concentration camp survivors. And they're they're testing new ideas about how they can bring people back to health um, and nourish people. And some of what they end up administering are uh, this product known as protein hydrolysates, which are basically injected directly into the veins or given through a nasal tube. It's it's the image of what happens when you reduce the human need to food into a medicine and then try and get it directly into the body and abstract all that cultural and social value of food out of the picture. And the result is really quite tragic because, of course, many of these people have been subjected to, to Nazi tests and executions and they scream and they resist and many of them die. The lessons take time to learn. And I think arguably that idea that food has a cultural and social value as well has taken a long time to really knit itself back into humanitarianism. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the, the questions I have that I'm really interested in is, is what the emotional impacts of this level of starvation, how is that managed? You know, and I ask this in part because of, I'm aware that there were studies done on prisoners of war later on that demonstrated that they never really recovered from having an obscure relationship with food. Is that is that correct? I don't know the studies that you're referring to, but there, there were a, a large numbers of studies done in the immediate post-war period and also in the 1944-1945 kind of period which was trying to look into what actually happens biologically within the body when people don't get enough food. So, for example, there was a test done in Minnesota by a nutritionist called Ansel Keys, where they got volunteers, mostly conscientious objectors who had refused to fight but wanted to contribute in some way to the war effort, to voluntarily starve themselves over a period of about six months and then test various refeeding regimes on them the big part of the study was to look at what happened in their bodies and what happened to their social relationships and what happened to their emotional states as they starved. I mean, the research ethics were completely dubious at the time because there were very little checks on, on that. But yes, there was all sorts of research that was going on into the biological side. But I think, yes, this is again where the social side of hunger is often missed. And it, of course, it has significance on the biological side as well, because one of the other lessons that emerged out of the Second World, the experience of the Second World War was that even if people are starving to death, they will have very strong opinions about what they are and are not willing to eat. So, for example, in the concentration camps, some of the British army brought with them a famine gruel, as they called it, that they had developed in the Bengal famine. But in the concentration camps in Europe, people didn't want to eat it at all. They, they, they rejected it and poured it away, even though they were really in need of food. So that, that cultural element about what is and isn't acceptable to eat, and also the way in which people eat it, the social roles that it, that it plays, does, of course, cross over and interlink with the biological questions as well. Mm, and the idea of self and self-worth, which goes hand in hand with nourishing oneself by putting something into oneself. It's, it's, it's this idea of when you've been through that much trauma and subjugation and emotional distress 
the, the idea of pouring that away, I wonder if that is almost a, a continuation of this part of the destruction. Yeah, and there's there's an element to which this is about control. I mean, if one of the the lessons from looking at the history of food aid is that culture matters, another one is that the participation of people themselves matters. And humanitarian aid has long had this paternalistic character where it acts on people rather than involving them. And in some respects, you could say, well, that's a good thing too. If people, are, if people are dying, then you need to be as efficient as possible in getting food to as many people as possible. And there is an argument that says you don't have time for participation. I, I would certainly push back against that because control is one of those things that people need when they're in emergencies and in disasters. And a good case in point is, in fact, when those large numbers of military rations were sold to the UN, before they were actually distributed to displaced people in the camps, they were taken apart and then cooked into new meals that were considered to be more nutritionally balanced. So rather than giving a K-ration out directly to somebody who can then choose how to eat it or choose how to cook it, it was broken down and then made into something that was considered by them, by them, I mean the humanitarians, to be of uh, ideal quality for the people who ate it. And there's that theme that really runs throughout the whole history of the of humanitarian relief, that idea, that, that paternalistic aspect of taking control away from the people who probably need control as much as they need nourishment. Well, of course, because control is autonomy. And when your autonomy is taken from oneself, it's, you know, what what do you have? So, and also the idea that food and sharing food is, is a joyful exercise. It's a social practice. It's not necessarily just a, a, a problem solving. It's not a necessary an A to B. So it's interesting what you're saying about how some of that social practice and that cultural practice just wasn't necessarily taken into account. No, not at all. And again, it comes back to this idea of trying to make a complex political and social problem that emerges from any humanitarian disaster into something that's amenable to a technical fix. And you do that by reducing food to nutrients and reducing people to their bodies that need the nutrients and then trying to create an efficient transfer from from one to the other. But yeah, that that leads to all sorts of problems. And it leads to all sorts of, frankly, disgusting and horrific foods. I mean, if we move now into the 1950s and 1960s, there was this high modernist moment in humanitarian nutrition, where the idea of growing food in the soil and relying on agricultural labour to then harvest it and waiting for many months for all the crops to grow suddenly seemed ridiculously inefficient and old-fashioned. And the new high modernist approach to food was to try and produce it in factories. So either grow it in big vats. A good example of this is a single cell protein, which is basically a form of um, a microprotein which reproduces itself extremely rapidly. And corn, you know, the vegetarian food that we all eat, is, is, is an example of this. But you also had foods that were made from algae, foods that were being produced from ordinary grass and green leaves, and they were all being tested as famine foods, first of all, because, again, the idea was here you're growing something. It's, it's nutrients that we need. It's not food. It's nutrients. And we can grow it more efficiently and we can get it to people as quickly as possible. But it doesn't consider, of course, whether or not people actually want to eat these foods. And very often they were completely disgusting, very unpalatable. And there is a big difference between nutrients and food, of course, when they get to the people who have to eat it. But talking about social practice, I mean, was there ever a system put in place that as I think there is now, that enabled the progression of the hungry. So, for example, land management, the ability to grow crops, manage livestock, etc. So are you referring to the 
connection between emergency feeding and then longer term development plans. That, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there's always been a lot of debate about where the connection lies. I mean, I'm not sure if I can really speak to it in a lot of detail because the way that I studied this was always to look at the emergency phase. There's always been a contested boundary between development work and humanitarian work and how you lead from one to the other. And very often humanitarian agencies quite jealously guard the boundary between them so that they only do that more um, emergency paternalistic kind of work. So often it's different agencies and different systems and different techniques which operate in those two those two realms. It doesn't tend to, of course, fall into the same problems. But I'm not sure if that's a very good answer to that particular question. No, that's great. It's just, I suppose, now places particularly, I don't know if you experienced this in the Sudan, but people are given the tools in order to feed themselves and learn to, to grow or manage crops to be able to provide food for themselves when that wasn't necessarily an option previously. I just wondered whether that was a method that was in place earlier on as well. Yeah, so I mean, and I think that's often considered to be the ideal, but it, it doesn't always take place. And when it does take place, it happens a lot later. I mean, I could talk about Sudan as an example of that it was a place where there was an enormous amount of fertile land and a lot of people who were requesting seeds and tools and so on. But there is, of course, a, a, almost an industry here, a humanitarian industry, which cranks into action whenever an emergency is declared and brings with it all sorts of systems. And it did strike me as slightly ridiculous that in South Sudan there was all this food being imported, particularly from America, into South Sudan when there was this desire for people to grow their own food. I mean, I mentioned at the beginning this product called CSB, corn soy blend. I think that's probably the best example that I can give of the way that approaches to hunger relief reveal a lot, a lot about the wider world and the social and political conditions of the world. I mean, the reason we have CSB is that its origins are in a product called CSM, which is corn soy milk, which was developed in the 1960s. And it was made of the three biggest surpluses that American agriculture was producing at the time. In other words, corn, that is maize, soy and powdered milk, dried milk. And so it becomes a way of connecting famine relief to the productivist agricultural system that existed in America at that time that was oriented around the massive overproduction of just a few commodities like wheat and, and corn and soy and so on, which are then being processed in various different ways and packaged and either exported as a humanitarian gesture through the food for peace laws or sold directly. And you can't separate out that whole system from the end result of the food that people get given. And one of the reasons you also have that is the trend of increasing vertical integration in the food industry when it's the same agribusinesses that plant and harvest and process and pack the food and try and add value at different stages to produce different kinds of food from the same commodities. And I found this fascinating example in the 60s where when CSM was being developed, that's corn soy milk, exactly the same products were being made into a slimming food called Metrical, which was the early version of the SlimFast plan. I don't know if you remember the SlimFast plan from the 80s, the, the milkshakes. But it was exactly the same ingredients, but one was being marketed in order to help people lose weight and the other was being marketed in order to help people gain weight. And I think it really, for me, illustrates how it was this productivist system that was really driving humanitarian needs and not necessarily what was best for people 
in the refugee camps or in Biafra, as it would have been then, where this food was being sent. That's such a terrifying juxtaposition of interests. It's just really uncanny, isn't it? The idea that you're selling diet food as well as humanitarian aid. But you could, you could argue it's just the, it's the it's the natural way of adding value mm. because for many of these businesses, the, the problem is the inelastic demand for food, the idea of the fixed stomach, and there's only so much food that people will buy. So that's why you get this system that just repackages the same basic commodities. Mm. And I can't yeah. remember the stats, but there is some statistic that says that the vast majority of food that's actually made in the world is all derives from just a few core commodities, mostly wheat and soy and maize. Uh, that's where most of the calories in the world come from. So it's all about how businesses then turn that into different kinds of product. But I suppose, yeah, that's that's my big point, that we often want to think of humanitarianism as being driven by ideals like neutrality and impartiality. And we're getting increasingly used to understanding that when it comes to politics, humanitarian agencies are embroiled in politics. But it's a step further to then think those technical practices, those foods that are given out, are also embroiled in those systems just as much. Um, and it's really, it's taking that step that I'm that I'm trying to encourage here as well. Some of the early practices, you, you know, you talked about the soup kitchen, other than the soup kitchen, which still is in, in um, practice today, of course. Is there anything that has has endured over the last 200 years? I think, this, yeah, the soup kitchen is a, is a very good example. And in fact, I remember presenting some of this work Many people, of course, pointing that out, that it's not as though the soup kitchen has, has gone away. It's still very, it's ever-present in, in many places. Yeah, it's almost, it almost represents something now. It's become almost a phrase, isn't it? It's, it's so ingrained in relief society or the idea of charitable giving. It represents a larger thing, I think. Yeah, and even I suppose it represents a, a shame that soup kitchens are still around because it does have these overtones of Victorian, Dickensian, London. Mm. And when people write or read newspaper reports about soup kitchens, it almost reminds us all that poverty is still here, particularly in, in this country. But uh, yeah, on soup, I mean, I think there's a reason that it endures. And it's probably because it's easy to make it scale. It's easy to dole out en masse. It produces this, this feeling, and I was going to say an illusion of, of warmth and being full, it's not just an illusion. I mean, it does make you feel warm and it does make you feel full. So there, there are some material advantages of that kind of food, which were almost interestingly ignored in that high modernist period where, you know, the tangibility, the, the feeling that food gave you became less important than the kind of scientific idea that lay behind it. There was almost this, I mean, I sometimes call it a, a neophilia, a, a kind of love of the new, an interest in science and innovation for its own sake when in fact it's not necessarily the easiest and the best way to provide something. I actually have another very nice example of that which was the production of food from grass and green leaves which was another one of these great hopes in the 1950s and 1960s. You know leaves and grass are all around us if only we can just extract the protein from these and then find a way of eating that we will solve the problem of world hunger. Well they're talking about doing that with, is it insects, the idea of bug protein? Yeah, I think, is that idea still around? I, I, I wasn't, I mean, I occasionally read these things in the papers about eating insects. Well, at the moment, it's it's like a kind of, I think it's probably one of those whole foods fads. Like I do remember seeing like a packet of like dehydrated wasabi bugs. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that you're trying to be more sustainable environmentally, but also 
enable people to access protein via these, well, I suppose, bugs and insects that they wouldn't necessarily be able to access. So I guess it is still moving forward in in, in that direction. Um, That was definitely part of the picture in the 60s and 70s. In fact, there was a book written with one of the most wonderful titles called Butterflies in My Stomach. It came out in the early early 70s and it was making the case for the amount of protein that was underutilised around the world in insects. Yeah, Yeah. I definitely think there's a resurgence in that because I have seen, I've definitely seen it. You know how you get, um, when you go around this food shop sometimes and you get people demonstrating and they say, oh, try this, there's this latest peanut butter or whatever. It was, I think it was somebody like that trying to sell the idea of ingesting bugs, ingesting mm. insects for, for higher levels of protein. There's all sorts of resonances. And there was another one that did the rounds a few years ago called Soylent, which was this liquid diet that people, particularly in Silicon Valley, who were too busy to eat lunch, were advocating for and it was a it was a bottle of food that you would choose yourself that was completely nutritionally balanced for you and it just meant that you could yeah, get rid of all that mess of cooking food and eating socially and all those cultural and social values we talked about and you just get the nutrients and you get them on your your, your desk and you just drink them that really that really inconvenient thing called lunch yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's i mean for me that's still very much the high modernist idea that that has its origins in the, the 50s and 60s. The, and, and it also is, of course, related to the space age as well. You, you, you package things up mm. and you produce the nutrients and you send, send them off. But, but yeah. the neophilia of this idea of grass and green leaves was that there was a man who spent his whole career trying to figure out a way to, to convert grass and green leaves into protein, essentially by mashing them up and then boiling up the liquid that you, you got as a result and coagulating the protein and then drying it and so on and so forth. And they tried to develop ways of making this procedure work in in poor countries so that it could be done on a local level. And, you know, millions of pounds were expended in many decades. And at the end, the report said, well, there's an obvious solution here, and that is that you should just grow a few more beans. And it was almost as though from the very beginning, it was the ideal, you know, that the notion that there's a more efficient way of producing nutrients that was driving this, rather than, you know, if you had an Occam's razor and just cutting it down and saying, what's the simplest and most obvious solution? It was always growing more beans. Mm, so yeah. there's always been this interest in, in technology and finding the, the later, using the latest technology to, to deliver relief. But it's almost become over-technical, I, I suppose, in, in some ways, rather than, as you say, stripping it back to the most basic solution. Yes, and you could argue it's a way of depoliticizing the problem. I mean, global hunger is a deeply political issue, but humanitarians try not to involve themselves in politics. So they turn it into a technocratic issue. But I think that's not always helpful. Tom, this has been absolutely fascinating. I've spoken to you probably almost double the length of time that I <laughs> you'd usually allot myself. So your book was out in April. Where can where can people buy it? I think it's available in most bookshops, as they say. <laughs> All good bookshops. Online, online, certainly. And um, just a reminder of the title. It's called On an Empty Stomach, 200 Years of Hunger Relief. Thank you. And are you on Twitter or any social media? I am on Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but I I lurk. (laughs) You lurk in the sidelines and watch what everyone else is doing. It's the safest place to be, to be honest. (laughs) I I agree. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for coming on Hidden Histories. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.